Welcome to the Paracel podcast, where we look at the issues, trends, and innovations shaping patient access to new drug therapies. I am Alberto Grignolo, Corporate Vice President at Paracel Regulatory and Access Consulting. This past weekend was one of the life sciences' biggest events, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO. This year for ASCO was unlike any other. The event went virtual for the first time, and registrants attended virtual sessions throughout the day on Saturday and Sunday. While the format was different, one thing was clear. Despite all that is happening in the world, there are still many patients in need, and while we have made great strides in oncology therapy, we must continue to focus as an industry on putting patients first to continue making progress during the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Today, I am joined by three of Paracel's experts in a promising area of oncology, cell and gene therapy. Dr. Todd Schuster is medical oncologist, senior vice president, global medical services. He joined Paracel 11 years ago after 15 years of clinical practice in the Boston area. Todd currently serves as global therapeutic area head for oncology and hematology. His research interests include targeted therapy and immunotherapy for solid tumors. Todd, welcome. Thanks, Alberto. Dr. Matthew Cooney is a medical oncologist and vice president, global medical services at Paracel. He also co-leads Paracel's cell and gene therapy initiative. Prior to joining Paracel, he practiced clinical hematology and oncology for over 15 years with university hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio, and was the interim division chief as well as the program leader for genitourinary oncology. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks, Alberto. Keith Donovan is an expert in early phase development for Paracel, predominantly in the oncology setting, with specialties in melanoma, pancreatic, ovarian, breast, non-small cell lung cancer, solid tumor, AML, and multiple myeloma. Keith has been with Paracel for close to six years, and prior to that, worked with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Keith, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Alberto. To get us started, can you explain how all three of you became interested in cell and gene therapy as a specialty area? Todd, would you like to go first? Sure. So I've really been interested in solid tumors throughout my career and have built my career in the area of clinical research, uh, specifically for solid tumors. And uh, having seen some of the incredible uh, progress that's been achieved in uh, some of the liquid tumors, in lymphoma, in acute uh, lymphoblastic uh, leukemia, specifically with uh, Tisacel and uh, Axacel, uh, I'm particularly excited about seeing cellular therapies really making their way into the field of solid uh, tumors. And I'm just um, very encouraged by some of the early data that we're seeing with cellular therapies uh, for uh, solid tumors, both in terms of the quality of response and the duration of response. So that's what gets me really excited about uh, cellular therapy. Thanks, Dad. Matt, uh, you're co-leading Paracel Cell and Gene Therapy Initiative. Who got you into this field? Thanks, Alberto. This is, you know, incredibly exciting. I mean, what what is there not to like about this? We have uh, really the dawn, truly meaningful gene therapy um, for more rare diseases, uh, oncology and non-oncology, that we're really going to see life-changing opportunities 
for our patients um, in a variety of settings. Um, for example, neurological conditions, uh, endocrinology, uh, you know, uh, ophthalmology with some blindness disorders that are rare. We really are excited about this and uh, we'll focus on oncology today, but we really feel that this will change medicine, not just in oncology, but for a variety of rare diseases uh, that we can target now with, with specific genetic therapy. Thank you, Matt. Keith, what was uh, your path to cell and gene therapy? Yeah, I think my initial interest um, in the broader field of immuno-oncology definitely started at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, uh, working in the melanoma and immuno-oncology centers there as a senior coordinator. And I had the privilege of working exclusively on the checkpoint inhibitor trial, CTLA-4, PD-1, PDL one um, with Dr. Stephen Hody at the time. And those checkpoint inhibitors are, of course, monoclonal antibodies, but they're working uh, by preventing tumor cells from impeding T-cell activity and that, in effect, is harnessing your own immune system to, to fight this disease. And that, of course, is exactly what, what cell and gene therapy aims to do. So that from there, coming to, to Paracel over six years ago and really working um, increasingly on cell and gene therapy products, the interest has only continued to grow. It's an incredibly exciting space. Okay, let's get to ASCO. So all of you attended ASCO virtually over the weekend, and I understand you paid particular attention and focus on cell and gene therapy and the presentations that were available at ASCO. So I'm interested in a conversation with you all around what were the key takeaways in cell and gene therapy at ASCO that you heard, and maybe, Todd, you could get us started on that. What What have you heard? Yeah, so there was a really interesting session uh, titled Harnessing Immunotherapy with Novel Approaches Beyond Checkpoint Inhibitors. And just as you would imagine, we've made incredible progress uh, with the use of checkpoint inhibitors. But as you know, the majority of patients uh, still are not uh, responding to uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So there's a whole area within the field of immunotherapy that really uh, is uh, yet to be explored. And I think what was exciting about ASCO virtual scientific program uh, uh, this year, I think were some of the initial uh, studies that were presented showing that we can make progress with cellular therapy in epithelial uh, cancers, that benefits are not restricted to lymphoid uh, tumors or leukemias that uh, we can see really impressive results in common tumor types, things like uh, lung cancer, uh, gastric uh, cancer, some of the tumors uh, specifically uh, associated with uh, HPV, like cervical cancer, head and neck cancer. And uh, some of the more exciting abstracts uh, that, that I was able to listen to over the weekend involve these studies for epithelial uh, cancers. And I think that's really an area that's going to take off. So, um, so that was very exciting over the uh, weekend. And I look forward to hearing more about those studies and more about uh, those uh, specific uh, tumor types. Matt, uh, what did you hear at ASCO in relation to cell and gene therapy that caught your attention? Yeah, uh, what really fascinated me was a whole class of drugs, you know, developing called bispecific antibodies. 
And essentially, they're an off-the-shelf solution um, targeting um, both solid tumor and malignant hematology um, to engage, you know, with the treatment. And it's really an overlapping with our traditional CAR T-cell therapies that we're seeing. The difference is these are off-the-shelf. Um, they're antibodies. They engage with the immune cell. Uh, with the tumor, they deliver a payload, and then they disrupt the signaling. And, you know, these, these medications are everywhere. Clinicaltrials.gov, there's over 125 trials ongoing. And at ASCO, we have over 35 abstracts of bispecific antibodies. And, and really interesting is what we're seeing is um, trials where the patients receive, for example, CAR T-cells, uh, they may fail, and then they go on to buy specific antibodies, and they see response in this salvage setting. And likewise, uh, we're seeing trials that will have a bispecific antibody. Um, some of these patients may fail, but then they go on to CAR T-cell therapy. So they're not mutually exclusive. Um, they, they both have response rates of following each other. And really the path forward is how do we figure out, you know, what is the best first option? Do we go to CAR T-cell first for some of these malignancies or do we go right to the bispecifics and, or vice versa? So really exciting time, uh, literally dozens and dozens of agents in development and uh, we're only on the tip of the iceberg on what the potential is. Keith, uh, turning over to you, you're a specialist in early phase, where perhaps smaller trials uh, tend to be the norm. Uh, what are your thoughts about this and about ASCO in general in relation to cell and gene therapy? Thanks, Alberta. Yeah, I think I think maybe echoing Todd's earlier point around um, excitement with some some early responses within T cell therapies, particularly in the solid tumor space, but then also acknowledging um, that they continue to be a bit more difficult in terms of durability of response. Um, and Dr. Christian Heinrich at the NIH and Dr. Michael Karn at MD Anderson had really nice presentations, um, as Todd mentioned, within the epithelial space detailing this. It raised some important questions that I think continue um, today and will, will continue in the future of essentially what's causing this. And, it, and Dr. Karn hypothesized that it does not appear to be the T cells that are at fault, sort of speak, um, but actually lack of durability in solid tumor space may be due to tumor homo or heterogeneity, um, which is a really interesting conclusion. So I think ultimately a key takeaway there for me, it seems to be clear that more creative solutions um, and identifying and targeting predictive biomarkers may be needed uh, to see similar durable responses in solid tumors. Are there any other you know, cell and gene therapy sessions that stood out for you and that any of you would like to mention in addition to the ones you've already mentioned? Todd? Let me first pick up a little bit on, on something that Keith mentioned, and then I'll, I'll mention another um, area that I, I thought was of particular interest. But this uh, presentation on uh, HPV-16-related uh, tumors uh, was uh, particularly um, interesting because we know that one of the problems in solid tumors is, is finding the right target. So it's not so obvious in solid tumors as it is in lymphoma or leukemia what the right uh, target should be. Uh, in addition, we're confronting issues with targeting and delivery of the T cells. 
and uh, also the immunosuppressive uh, tumor microenvironment. And uh, Keith mentioned that uh, we're already starting to um, gather really important information about resistance uh, mechanisms. It turns out that in this uh, presentation uh, related to the HPV-related tumors where the target was the E7 uh, protein, that there were defects in HLA and beta-2 microglobulin that were responsible for developing resistance uh, to therapy. So these were defects within the tumor cell. And as Keith said, these were not T-cell issues. So this is really important uh, in thinking about ways that we're going to overcome this resistance in the future. Now, to answer your question were there, uh, about other areas of interest, uh, there was a uh, um, another interesting presentation using a cancer cell vaccine uh, that was applied in advanced uh, solid tumors. So uh, this was a presentation uh, by Dr. Gonzalez Marcano. Uh, and uh, this was a personalized uh, vaccine in which circulating tumor cells were collected, cultured, and then the cells were disrupted and then a lyophilized product was prepared and administered to patients over a period of 60 days. And although there weren't a lot of details about the methodology, I think um, the results were at least intriguing. So there were 31 patients in the study and a response rate of about uh, 20% in these uh, patients using this personalized uh, cell vaccine. So this is an encouraging and is really a proof of concept. I think we need more details about the study, and it's likely that in the future we'll be looking at combining these vaccines with checkpoint inhibitors uh, in the future. But uh, again, this was um, something that I think is a, just the first step in, in applying vaccines uh, to treatment of uh, solid tumors, an area that holds a lot of promise for the future. Todd, is the concept of personalized vaccine brand new? It, it really is a, a new concept. As you know, um, the, the only vaccine that's uh, currently uh, been approved is for prostate cancer. And uh, that is not a, a personalized vaccine. It works in a minority of, of uh, patients. And this um, technology that was uh, presented uh, at ASCO this year, I think, uh, really holds hope that uh, we can apply vaccines like this to patients with a variety of tumor types. So I'm very encouraged and very hopeful about what this means for the future. I can't resist asking you, Todd, uh, if the vaccine was individualized, why was the response rate only 20%? Uh, presumably, it should be far higher than that if there is true customization to each patient. I'm being naive, I'm sure. Uh, would you have expected a higher response rate than 20%? Well, this is where the devil is in the details. So in a short presentation at ASCO, you don't get all the information about uh, biomarkers. And uh, I think uh, we need to wait for the final uh, publication. But there were obviously uh, some uh, reasons why the immune response was suboptimal in uh, certain uh, patients. 
and uh, why it was effective in, in some. In fact, um, the responses were seen primarily in patients with uh, breast cancer, and there was a uh, response in a patient uh, with colon cancer. So why didn't, why didn't some of the other patients uh, respond? I think we need to wait for uh, more data, and uh, I think we'll have a better understanding of why it is. Maybe it has to do with uh, antigen uh, presentation in those uh, particular uh, tumor types. Okay. Got it. Matt, uh, what stood out to you beyond what you've already shared with us? Yeah, sure. I mean, there was, there was so many exciting things. And just being, you know, my, the clinician in me just has some basic questions, for example, in uh, cell therapy uh, for liquid tumors, you know, do the responses last? Are they durable? And what if I have a patient that I was, that was treated um, and they respond, but then they relapse? Could I, could I do the cell therapy again? So there's actually very two interesting abstracts, one with by Dr. Capel, that try to ask, answer the first question, you know, really what's a long-term follow-up of uh, CAR T-cell therapy? And if you look at um, AxiCell, uh, which is, you know, currently FDA-approved, they went all the way back to 2009. So they had over a decade of experience with patients treated with this agent. And pretty remarkably, um, with a response rate of about 76%, the complete response rate was 54% and durable. So, you know, up to a decade or longer. So not only are these drugs, um, you know, pretty incredible in, in, in curing patients, you know, their durable responses over a decade long documented. So really, really amazing technology and, and treatment options for our patients. The second question is, what happens when you have a patient and they respond well to CAR T-cell, but they're, they're not in complete response, what can you do? Is it safe and feasible to, to try it again? The answer to that question is yes. So in a separate abstract by Dr. Locke uh, reviewed that retreating with CAR T-cell uh, after the first time uh, can be safe. The um, serious adverse events, including cytokine release syndrome, was a, similar to the first time the patient saw the um, infusion. But patients uh, can achieve a response, and up to almost 60% of patients received another clinical response and clinical benefit. So, you know, not only are these uh, CAR T-cell uh, therapeutics safe and durable, they can uh, be retreated for the appropriate patient uh, who initially had a response. So I thought that was very interesting uh, from, from a clinical standpoint. You mentioned 54% durability of response as being amazing. What number would you have expected normally or historically? Well, well you know, I tell you, you know, the, the, if you go back a decade or, or so um, with these patients on these trials, they were heavily pretreated. Um, they were, you know, out of options, if you will. Um, they had gone through all the standard immune therapy available at the time, as well as cytotoxic chemotherapy, and these were very, you know, heavily pretreated patients. So, you know, curing half these patients is, you know, it's remarkable. I mean, we almost take it for granted a decade later, um, but you know, that that was really striking, and and it almost seemed like a miracle um, with these response rates. I'm sure you don't use the word miracle lightly, <laughs> Matt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. I'd say uh, the, these uh, cellular therapeutics, whether they're autologous or allogeneic, um, you know, they're really uh, incredible. And another really interesting um, development is uh, allogeneic uh, CAR T cells. So, so cells uh, from someone else, not necessarily from the patient themselves, are autologous. So allogeneic uh, cells for uh, T cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia are just coming on the scene. Uh, it's an HLA unmatched product, so much easier uh, for the patient selection. 
And the target usually is CD7, uh, which is overexpressed on the T cell uh, ALL. And this is very early, but it's interesting. Uh, with their first five patients, they saw three complete responses uh, in this very hard to treat refractory uh, patient population. So uh, Dr. Wang and colleagues are really, you know, very, very early, but it just, it's a product that I'm going to follow in a scheme I'm going to follow for the next year or two is how do we take allogeneic CAR T cells uh, into very refractory, very tough to treat diseases such as T cell, ALL, and see if we can't move the needle a little bit on these uh, very hard to treat patient populations. If I could um, just jump in for one second, Matt, and also add that there was a uh, there was also a really interesting uh, allogeneic uh, CAR T cell therapy for solid tumors that was uh, presented as well. So this was from Dr. Hans uh, Prenen uh, out of uh, Belgium presented a study called the Alloshrink uh, study, and uh, this was really a first-in-class compound, which was an allogeneic product produced from uh, healthy donor uh, cells. And uh, this was uh, using a natural killer group uh, 2D receptor. And this uh, product, uh, which they called uh, SIAD-101, produced responses in two patients uh, out of uh, 15. So it doesn't sound like, like a lot, uh, but uh, this is really a proof of concept uh, that you could take an allogeneic uh, product uh, like this and you could see responses. And most importantly, they modified the product uh, to avoid seeing graft versus uh, host uh, disease. And they were able to do this without impacting the activity of the uh, CAR uh, T cell. Uh, so really an interesting uh, approach. And this was uh, being used in patients with metastatic uh, colorectal uh, cancer uh, who had uh, progressed after uh, two lines of therapy. And so although a 13% response rate uh, may not sound uh, that uh, exciting, uh, there's a lot of uh, ground to build on uh, here for patients, not only in colorectal cancer, but in other solid tumors. Thank you, Todd. Uh, Keith, uh, your thoughts? Any other sessions that uh, you found notable? Yeah, I think Matt and Todd hit on on a lot of the high points. And I might only add that it, it seems clear that convenience of, of therapy um, modality is, is certainly going to come in, continue to come into focus. And by that, I mean products that are so-called off the shelf, as, as Matt was detailing. Um, and to that end, I thought Dr. Usmani's presentation from Levine Cancer Institute on their bispecific antibody um, targeting BCMA and, and CD3 in multiple myeloma was interesting, um, both because they, they did see promising overall response at the higher dose level at 67%. Um, but, but perhaps even more interestingly as well as two, there was no grade three um, CRS observed. And so I think as the field continues to, to sort of weigh options, um, some of the early autologous products that, that may be a bit complex um, and quite costly um, may see competition from more cost-effective and more convenient modes of therapy options. Okay, let me move to another question, a very timely question, I think. We have all seen over the past few months how COVID-19 has impacted just about every aspect of drug development across the board. 
Yet, uh, we all know that patients in many therapeutic areas are still waiting for new therapies. Have you all seen an impact on cell and gene therapy drug development as a result of COVID-19? And if so, in what areas? Todd? Yeah, I think uh, COVID-19 has impacted just about every area in oncology, specifically in cell and gene therapy, where we're often uh, talking about a, a single dose of a, a therapy. It's uh, particularly important. If we can uh, manage uh, patients uh, and do this as an outpatient uh, without requiring prolonged periods of uh, hospitalization, uh, I think uh, we provide uh, a better safety margin for patients. So I think it's a real consideration when we think about both the the lymphodepleting regimen that is uh, often used uh, before treatment, as well as uh, some of the uh, post-treatment uh, therapies uh, like uh, high-dose uh, interleukin-2. So if we can avoid uh, using uh, those, or if we can modify uh, those types of therapies that must be administered uh, as an inpatient, I think it uh, stands to help our patients avoid uh, the risk of uh, COVID-19. So I think that uh, that's just one of the ways in which uh, I think COVID-19 has influenced the treatment uh, of patients uh, using cellular and gene therapies. Does this situation open the door to remote trials, decentralized trials, direct-to-patient trials? Is it even practical to think of these uh, you know, innovative therapies being administered basically in the patient's home? instead of in a hospital that might expose a patient to the risk of infection? Well, I think we're really talking about uh, hybrid types of, of trials. The therapies uh, still need to be administered uh, in the clinic or uh, in the hospital. But some of the follow-up uh, studies, some of the biomarker uh, assays uh, that are so important uh, for these studies, some of those could be done with uh, home visits and blood sample uh, collection at uh, home, sparing patients from coming into the clinic. Uh, so I think that is a possibility to take what have been uh, studies which were administered solely in the clinic and moving these to a hybrid uh, type model. How much experience have we had at Paracel in doing just that, the, this hybrid approach? We've actually had quite a bit of uh, experience in 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 doing this. I think Paracel was really on the on the forefront of uh, virtual trials and uh, hybrid uh, trials, and we always uh, look at not only new protocols but ongoing protocols to see where might we be able to move some of the uh, visits or some of the follow-up uh, testing out of the clinic and into the patient's uh, home. So I think there's been, there's actually been quite a bit of experience and Parkcell is uh, dedicated to this concept of uh, hybrid trials and virtual trials. Okay. Matt, uh, from your point of view, have you seen examples of this concept of hybrid trials moving from theory to actual practice? Sure. Uh, the clients we're mostly uh, using our hybrid uh, trials right now, are, are, especially the, um, the initial phase still is pretty clinic dependent, not necessarily inpatient, but we still have to have a lot of patient visits, safety, check for cytokine release syndrome, etc. But 
when you get farther out, you know, six months to 12 months, we've, we're doing more remote monitoring. Uh, some of these trials require patients to be uh, followed up to five years and even up to 15 years in very select instances. So we've, we've gone to a technology where the farther the patient has gotten away from the investigational product, the less in-hospital visits we were doing, and it's more of a technology-driven uh, safety check with the patient that's much more convenient for them and their families. More patient-centric approach? Exactly. So, you know, what we worry about is not just the patient's time. We worry about the perhaps spouse or perhaps uh, adult son and daughter uh, taking time off from work and, and rearranging their own lives uh, for the care of their loved ones. So we try to build the whole family in mind, uh, not just the patient, but the patient's family. A time for disruptive innovation, uh, to use a well-worn phrase. Uh, Keith, uh, what have you seen in your area of interest? Uh, impact of COVID-19 on drug development activities from your point of view? Yeah, I think I think the biggest impact that I've seen in the early um, cell and gene therapy drug development pipeline with clients is, is a direct impact on manufacturing timelines. Uh, much of this is, is conducted outside of the U.S. And so it has led, at least in the short to medium term, to trial delays um, that are being put on hold, although we're starting to see that uh, really rapidly begin to pick back up. Okay. Let me move to another topic. Um, of course, many large pharmaceutical companies are heavily engaged in cell and gene therapy, but so are numerous biotech companies, uh, small and medium-sized firms that are really looking at this as the next promising area of treatment. But for small and emerging companies, the timelines and challenges associated with developing these therapies can be very significant. So in your opinion, what are the biggest hurdles that biotechs face in this area? And what advice do you give to companies to accelerate the development path in cell and gene therapy? Todd, would you like to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll start out. Let me just say that there are numerous uh, hurdles to overcome uh, in cell and gene therapy. Uh, and I think uh, you could create a long list of uh, items uh, from study design uh, to regulatory issues uh, to biostatistics uh, to genomics to uh, logistics and so on. And I think... Um, Many of the um, companies that uh, we're working uh, with have uh, needs in, um, in, uh, in, in one or more of these uh, areas, often in, in many of these areas. And uh, Parkcell has the ability to, to work with uh, companies in a flexible manner to be able to provide uh, whatever um, types of uh, services are needed to meet their needs. And uh, we understand that it's going to be different for every uh, company, but uh, we have the resources available to be able to provide uh, services in all of these uh, different uh, areas. And I think that that uh, flexibility is uh, really what's needed uh, for working with uh, these emerging uh, biotech uh, companies. Matt, uh, how are you uh, addressing the needs of your biotech clients in the cell and gene therapy space? Well, you know, so there's so many challenges and hurdles, but such an exciting opportunity for our biotech clients. It's really a very, very interesting uh, time. Uh, you know, what I start when we sit down with biotech clients at the beginning, you know, for me, it's uh, regulatory. We spend a lot of time with our regulatory experts. We're fortunate to have several uh, FDA 
experts in cell and gene therapy on our team. And we really want to make sure we get the regulatory uh, buttoned up before we move forward. Once we have the regulatory pathway uh, defined, you know, we, we just then we plug in the rest of the pieces uh, that Todd, Todd mentioned. But, you know, really regulatory is absolutely key and fundamental to start. Keith, uh, what about you, your perspective? I would add navigating the complex manufacturing maze is, is front and center as well. And growing, sourcing, and transporting cells as well as other components there can be very tricky in this space. Um, and that's, as, as Matt and Todd have mentioned, that's where some of our internal experts, um, a number of whom are ex-FDA OTAT, such as Mo Hyderin from the CMC and product side, and Steve Winitsky from the clinical side, they can play such an important role up front in helping our clients optimize their development planning, regulatory pathways straight out of the gate. To me, that type of early engagement uh, with these experts is critical. I'm glad you mentioned manufacturing because, to some extent, some of this is uh, by the bedside manufacturing. Is that right? That's right. For for autologous products, um, there is the added complexity, um, given that these are cells derived from the patient, uh, for an extra step that these then need to go to a manufacturing center uh, before they are then reintroduced back to the patient. Um, so, so absolutely, with within a similar vein, uh, end-to-end IP tracking and transportation is also key. Uh, we have an incredible clinical trial supply and logistics team who are able to coordinate, whether it be um, depot storage, shipper solutions, temperature requirements, real-time chain of custody uh, that is absolutely critical uh, is another offering that we provide and, and of course, a central focus piece um, as an obstacle within the space. So to what extent would bedside manufacturing lend itself to the hybrid approach that Todd and Matt were talking about? Uh, can this be done at the bedside of the patient at home? to any extent, or is that really not possible? It has to be done in a hospital setting. So uh, we're seeing some incredible manufacturing advances uh, from very, very um, innovative companies where you could take an hours-long process and literally at the bedside, almost looking like a dialysis-type machine, if you will, that can do a lot of the autologous uh, work uh, for the CAR T-cells in particular. Uh, none of these uh, technologies are quite ready for home use. Um, that may or may not, you know, ever happen. But the convenience and the outpatient setting are clearly uh, the focus of many of these treatments. And we think that's a more patient-centric approach where we can minimize patient hospitalization and, and certainly exposure to you know, scary things like uh, COVID-19. Right. Interesting space to to be exploring. Over the past five years, Parcel has provided clinical and technology services for more than 90 cell and gene therapy projects, and we've had a cross-functional team of cell and gene therapy experts that span areas such as early phase clinical development, regulatory support, medical imaging, market access, and more. So I'd like to ask all of you, what do you feel are the key areas for success along the path for cell and gene therapy? And on the other side of that coin, what are the biggest hurdles and opportunities for success? Todd? Well, I'll start out and I'll just say that it's a team effort. Uh, So I think the key here is really um, having all of the the, the expertise, all of the specialists uh, involved uh, in order to make this uh, successful. So we talked uh, a, a little bit about uh, some of the various uh, services that are needed, including 
um, uh, regulatory, uh, biomarkers, biostatistics, uh, 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 clinical logistics, and, and so on. So I think the key to success is, is really to work uh, together as a, as a team. And uh, we, as a CRO, we really enjoy working with our sponsor partners as part of a team really uh, offering the, um, the, the expertise that I think is essential for successfully delivering uh, complex studies uh, like this. The expertise in recognizing uh, some of the unique toxicities uh, seen with uh, therapy is another critical part of this. Um, so I'll let uh, Keith and, and Matt uh, comment, but I think the team approach is really um, one of the key components to success. Thanks for the insight, uh, Todd. Matt, any additional thoughts? Yeah, I, I do think that what we're seeing from our clients and one of their biggest needs are is the data quality uh, and turnaround time uh, for the client. So for example, if you have a very innovative product uh, that's showing outstanding results, uh, we need to have the data uh, as quickly as we can cleaned, uh, verified, and turned around back to the client. Because many of our clients are taking this data and are looking for options for accelerated approval. So there's immense pressure uh, for data quality and timeliness that we're readjusting our teams, we're, we're providing the flexibility and structure where the data is given back to the client in almost real time, where they can make uh, decisions about product moving forward, regulatory issues, and other concerns uh, in real time. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Keith, any thoughts from your perspective and the type of work that you do? Absolutely. I would add careful site selection and group that with safety. And I, I group these two together because site and staff experience with cell and gene therapies, as Todd had been alluding to previously, and their ability to properly manage common known toxicities um, with these types of therapies like CRS, like neurotoxicity, is, is fundamental. And our internal feasibility team at ParXL um, has developed a global cell and gene therapy site network where we ensure appropriate sites with the appropriate cred credentials and, and accreditations are being selected and put on these studies, whether that be fact accreditation within the U.S., JC accreditation within the EU, or AP um, BMT group accreditation within the APAC region as a proxy for experience within cell therapy space in general. Um, beyond this, given the complexity of these studies, these sites also really need to have experienced staff with multidisciplinary teams that have established communication and workflow pathways that are already established, robust SOPs, from the equipment side, and they really need to have vapor phase freezes to store these many of these drugs, um, and access to tocilizumab for management of CRS. And then if it's an autologous product, there are unique challenges as well that require leukapheresis capabilities, as well as potentially proximity of the site to a manufacturing um, center that may be key. And then finally, I would say really our internal experienced clinical operation teams, both on the project leadership side, CRAs, and our COLs, offering robust site training, safety monitoring, and helping to generate study tools like tox management cards, patient ID cards, and doing a mock patient run-through with the sites are key. Again, very complex, many of these therapies, and having the sites that are experienced, well-oiled machines, and working through these types of studies are key, and we put a real emphasis on that. 
Finally, Todd, let me ask you, what do you think was the most exciting development for patients coming out of this year's ASCO annual meeting? So I think what's really exciting is to take this back to what I mentioned at the beginning, uh, that uh, we're really starting to see a technology that was limited to a very small percentage of uh, patients uh, now being applicable to a much uh, larger uh, percentage. So when we look at uh, where CAR T-cell therapy has been, uh, hematologic malignancies uh, make up uh, somewhere around uh, 5 uh, to 10% of uh, uh, oncologic uh, diseases, but constituted about uh, two-thirds of the CAR T-cell uh, trials uh, up until um, uh, recently. So now we're starting to see that uh, CAR T-cell and uh, T-cell receptor uh, uh, by specific uh, uh, antibody uh, therapies uh, are now playing a role in the treatment of patients with uh, solid tumors. And we saw this in particular, the uh, study with the specific peptide-enhanced uh, antigen receptor T-cells, the so-called SPEAR uh, therapy, uh, which showed a remarkable response rate in patients with synovial sarcoma. This is a rare tumor type, but the technology is something that uh, we think uh, can be applied to patients with other tumor types in the future. And I think that's um, really going to be to the benefit of patients with the more common uh, tumor types, and I think is a really exciting uh, development that we have uh, to look forward to in the years ahead. I want to thank you all. This has been a very illuminating experience, uh, very encouraging to see such great progress coming out of ASCO this year. Uh, Todd, Matt, Keith, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alberto. This has been the latest edition of the Parkcell Podcast. To learn more from experts like Todd, Matt, and Keith, you can visit Paracel.com or listen to more of our podcasts on Google Play, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. After listening, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review this episode. See you next time.